This is a bonus episode of What Was That Like? If you're new to the show, this is not normally what you'll hear. What usually happens is I'll have someone come on the show to tell the story of something that happened to them. Something that was really unusual. At this point, we have over 130 episodes and a huge variety of stories. Animal attacks, plane crashes, mass shootings, all kinds of experiences. And at the end of each episode, we have a listener story. This is a short story that's sent in by a listener. It's not an interview. It's just the person talking about something interesting that happened to them. I started ending each episode with one of these short stories back in 2021. And just about a month or so ago, I put out a bonus episode with all the listener stories from 2022. And I got a lot of positive feedback from that. So I thought it would be good to get all of the other listener stories, the ones from the beginning in 2021, and put them out as a bonus episode as well. So that's what we have here today. And if you have a story like this, I'd love to hear it. It can be funny or sad or anything, really, as long as it's interesting and you can tell it in about 5 to 10 minutes. Just record it on your phone and email it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. There's a good chance I'll play it in a future episode of the podcast. I really enjoyed hearing these stories again from a couple of years ago, and I think you will too. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential, Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds. Experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. 
But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. My father was in an accident involving a train when I was a child. He was out late with some friends and on his way home when he came upon an uncontrolled railroad crossing, which essentially means that there are no signals or gates. It's just a a crossing kind of on a country road. And he didn't see the train approaching, so it hit him and he died instantly. My family really struggled with it. And to this day, I have not asked where it happened specifically, We don't talk about it often, and I know if I knew the location, I would never be able to cross the tracks again. But, um, of course, every time I cross tracks, I wonder if those are the ones that happened. But I'm I'm working on healing from it, um, despite the fact that it's been 17 years now. Um, It's still prevalent in my mind, and anytime I hear a train whistle or see railroad tracks, I, I think of him. One thing, strange thing about his passing was shortly before he died, we went to Six Flags as a family and we were waiting in line and they had the little sweepstakes that you can enter in the little plastic box. And he entered us in a free trip to Hawaii. And I've always wondered, do people even win those things? But for whatever reason, after he passed, we got a phone call and we had won and we ended up spending spending um, approximately two weeks in Hawaii after he died. And he was the type of person that loved the beach. And I mean, in my eyes, it was a gift from him. And to this day, I will forever view it that way. I'm definitely looking for support groups. If anyone else has been through something similar, um, family members lost due to um, a car accident involving a train, um, you can reach out to me at a-m-b-e-r-r-h-a-s-t-y at gmail.com. Thank you. Visiting my Uncle Bob and Aunt Margie's dairy farm was something I looked forward to on our once-a-year family trip to the country. I loved the cows in the cornfield. Their dogs were a pleasure, too, since we didn't have any pets. Aunt Margie would cook up a great country supper when we visited. Uncle Bob once gave me and my sister a ride on the tractor, which was pulling a corn harvester through the field. It was exhilarating to watch the corn fly up from the stalk and fall into the large container behind the tractor to be brought to the silo. Those were the best days, and I wished I could live on a farm instead of the city. I had just turned 11 before this visit in the late 1950s, and it was getting late in the day, and we hadn't been to the cornfield yet. I wanted so badly to stand next to those tall stalks and maybe walk around a bit. 
The adults were sitting in chairs near the garden, and I stood in front of my father and asked, Can I go for a walk in the cornfield? He ignored me and kept conversing with Uncle Bob, so I stood in front of my mother and asked the same question. She wouldn't answer me. These were the days of children being seen and not heard. I decided it was getting late and we would be leaving soon, so I made the decision to go see the cornfield by myself. I walked past the silo and came to the gate in the fence. I unlatched it and walked through onto a dirt ground. The cornfield was in sight, and I took four steps toward it, and then my feet wouldn't move anymore. I didn't understand what was happening. I tried to turn around toward the gate, but my feet and legs wouldn't follow my upper body. I felt desperate and tried to reach the fence for something to hang on to, but it was out of reach. I was sinking fast in mud. I wondered how I could remedy this. Could I scream? My 11-year-old logic told me that my parents didn't hear me when I was standing right in front of them, so most likely they would probably not hear me now. The mud was up to the bottom of my chest, and I reasoned that soon I may need to hold my breath. I knew I could hold it for a long time because I practiced at the pool in town. I wondered how much further I would sink. The mud was up to my neck when suddenly I saw my cousin running toward me. A look of shock was on her face as she spun back around, leaving a trail of dust at her feet as she ran with all her might to get help. Soon, the only way to survive was to tilt my head back as far as I could and stare at the sky. I looked down my nose and saw my Aunt Margie running full blast toward me. And then I felt her hands reach in and grab my arms and pull my muddy body out of that sinkhole. My aunt hosed me off in the cow barn and explained that it had rained for three days and caused a sinkhole right where I stepped. When I asked if I would have drowned in that mud, she answered yes. Sadly, we never visited the farm again. It's no wonder I had nightmares and panic attacks. Hi, this is James Clattenburg, and this story is about a small plane crash in the Turks and Caicos Islands back in 1992, I believe. So I went to the island with a friend, Dave, and we first went to Provo, or Providenciales, and we were there for a few days, and this big storm came in. And we had already planned to go to Salt Key, or Salt K, for this middle part of the trip. and there was a pilot who was going to take us to this small little island. I think only about 60, 80 people, less than 100 residents anyways. So it was very stormy and we met the pilot the day before and he said, do you guys still want to go tomorrow? It's going to be very stormy, but you know, we should be fine. So we said, sure. So we were staying at this small little hotel or guest house on Salt Key. And we got in contact with the guy because he was going to pick us up, the owner of the hotel or the inn, and then take us to the property. So we get on the plane that morning and it was very windy and it was a five-seater Cessna. And I believe there was only one door and it was on the passenger side. So the pilot jumps in, then I get into the back, which is a row of three seats, very small seats. And my friend Dave gets in the front. So he's take off and it was extremely windy i mean 
granted it was a small plane and it was just the plane was just bouncing all over the place i'm holding on to either side granted this is only a a 10 minute flight from provo to salt key so we start to land and i'm not a pilot but i know that you land against the wind not with the wind behind you so we we can see the small little runway which was basically it looked like i don't know how many feet long but it was very small and it was surrounded by barbed wire to keep out the donkeys and the wild bulls that roam this little island. So we're landing and the wind is just pushing us so fast towards this runway. And so we basically just slam into the ground and the pilot just says, Oh shit. And he immediately turns the, the wheel and the landing gear just collapsed and we are scraping along sideways towards the end of this runway and at the end of the runway there's a row of barbed wire like i was mentioning to keep out the wild animals so the propeller flies off we're skidding and it was sort of like being in in a car in the snow where you don't there's no control you don't know when it's going to stop and we're just skidding along skidding along and all of a sudden the plane stops probably 10 feet short of the end of the runway one wing is through the barbed wire and then beyond that, there's a ditch. The pilot immediately unbuckles his seatbelt, jumps out over my friend Dave, who is, is a big guy, like football player guy. And, and he runs down the runway and leaves us there. So we're stranded. We're thinking, oh my God, is this plane going to blow up? I mean, it, it all happened so quick. And we just slammed into that runway and we, we both thought that the plane was going to, who knows, explode. So he runs off. We get out of our seatbelts. We get out of the plane and, you know, we're running away from the plane and we see the guy who owned the inn who was there to pick us up. And he looks at us and he says, I have lived on this island for 15 years. I have never seen a plane come in so fast. He said, I thought you guys were goners. Now, would you like a cocktail or do you need to change your underwear? So I laugh about it now, but it was scary, scary, scary because it was just, uh, it was funny. And then there were other things that happened on that particular island, like I was chased by a donkey and then it was sucked into the ocean. So in the end, we ended, we ended up laughing about it, but we called it Death Island because, <laughs> uh, so hopefully uh, nothing like that will ever happen again. So, um, but anyways. That's my little airplane crash story. Hi, my name's Tristan, and it's the story of how I gave my parents her first gray hair. Before this day, I had no significant health issues as a child whatsoever, and nothing significant to speak of for dread. But this is a story from when I was six years old. My parents picked me up from my grandmother's house and we drove out to Coo Lake for a family day of fun in the shrine. At this time, my mom was about eight months pregnant with my little brother and looking forward to laying out by the water while she still had a chance before a newborn came. I had been running a fever at my grandmother's house, but factually neglected to tell my parents before they allowed me to wade in the cold lake water. I remember getting my life jacket on and following my dad out into the shallow parts of the water where he showed me some tiny fish. I remember getting out of the water, my mom wrapping me in a beach towel, 
and laying back in one of the chairs we had packed. I even remember my mom letting me have a sip of her diet coat. Her lips were turning blue was the next thing I remember hearing. I could hear my mom yelling, but I couldn't see her. I couldn't see my dad. I couldn't see anything. And after another couple of seconds, I couldn't hear anything either. The next thing I remember seeing was an x-ray of my chest on the light table across from me in my hospital room. Now, normally you might think, okay, an ambulance just called and I was easily helped. Well, keep in mind, this is 1996, the days before everyone had a cell phone in their pocket. And we were at a lake in a part of the city where most of the homes were vacation homes, meaning they were empty at the time. My parents knew I needed to get to the hospital, but we were somewhere unfamiliar and I had no idea where the hospital was. So my dad picked me up and took me in his arms, along with my very pregnant mother, ran from door to door trying to get a hold of someone to call 911. They knocked on the door. The five or six houses were spotting a driveway with the end of the truck tonight. By the grace of God, someone answered the door, and it was the wife of the pediatrician who was next door playing darts with the ambulance driver. Needless to say, they picked me up, and I rode with them into the hospital. My dad followed in the van that was almost out of gas. When I woke up and was cleared to go home, we were out of gas in our van. But the doctor who we'd seen earlier had a broken gas gauge. So gave us his extra gas can to get home. When you find out that you're going to be on Shark Tank, you prepare yourself for a lot of different outcomes. You prepare yourself for the euphoria of getting a deal and getting an investment on live TV from one of your favorite sharks. You also prepare yourself for the possibility of humiliating yourself on national TV and having all your friends see what an idiot you look like. What you don't prepare for is violence. When my business partner and I showed up in L.A., it was after a long flight, and uh, just so you know, they don't send you down in first class. They send you down in Southwest Airlines on the cheapest ticket they can get, and I sat in the center seat and was exhausted when we got there, so we went out drinking. At the bar where we were drinking, there were a couple other contestants, including one who was very obnoxious and insisted on showing us pictures of his cars and his watches, bragging about the money that he had made developing apps. Soon, this guy went from being a blowhard to an asshole, and he started to harass the bartender. At that point, he said some things that were very offensive, and I proceeded to remove him from the bar. I put him in a little arm lock, and I threw him out. Uh, I'm not a tough guy. He was just a small guy, which enabled me to do this. I returned to the bar, and uh, the nice folks who were sitting around the bar gave me a little ovation, which felt good because... Uh, I never do this kind of stuff. I sat down, I had another drink, and within a couple of minutes, out of the corner of my eye, I see him running from the kitchen at me, and he runs up to me and punches me square in the temple. It didn't knock me out, but it hurt and made me dizzy, and the first thing I did is I put him into a headlock, and I was going to start to punch him, and my business partner said, don't do it. Do not jeopardize our chance. The manager of the restaurant came up and said, hey, I can have the Culver City police here in five minutes. And I said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Let's just get him out of here and lock the door behind him. The manager took him out and uh, he never came back. 
the next morning in the hotel lobby, I run into the guy and he pretended not to remember what happened, which actually was probably the best course of action because that way there was no uncomfortable, I should have kicked your ass moments. It was just an odd exchange between me and some dude who was pretending to be blacked out. The irony of this situation was that the product that this dude was there to pitch to the sharks was an anti-bullying app. His segment never did end up airing, so he has nothing to do with Shark Tank, and there's no way anyone could find out who this guy is. But the long and the short of it is anything can happen when you go on Shark Tank, including getting punched in the head. My name is Matt Franklin, and since my appearance on Shark Tank, I've uh, started a podcast called The Rogue Retirement Lounge, and it's all about retirement planning for entrepreneurs. Yeah, hi, my name's John, and I had this story from when I was a kid where uh, we were driving through the Verde River area in uh, Arizona, and it was the middle of spring, and the wasps were all flying around, and I'm terrified of anything that flies or stings. And my dad gets the truck stuck, and so he gets out to unstick the truck, and the windows are down, and I'm sitting there freaking out that a wasp might fly into the car, and my dad gets tired of hearing it, so he yanks me out of the car and puts me in the middle of this swarm of wasps and basically says, face your fears, and then goes back to try and get the truck unstuck. And I'm about as terrified of wasps as I am of my dad, so I'm just sitting there freaking out, terrified to move with all these wasps swarming around me. And my mom decides to come out and try to calm me down, and she ends up getting stung a bunch of times while trying to calm me down. I take this opportunity to run screaming back to the car, and I cover myself in a blanket until the car starts moving again. Meanwhile, my mom and dad are over there fighting about how she got stung and how that's no way to deal with your kid's phobia. To this day, I'm still terrified of things that fly and sting. Not nearly as bad as when I was a kid, though. When I was four, my mother and I lived in a one-bedroom apartment in downtown Vancouver. In the summer, there was suddenly a smell. Then it became a bad smell. And soon after that, it was unbearable. My mother called the landlord about the smell, and they didn't do anything. The smell got even worse, till one day, my mom had enough and went to examine the cause. She sniffed and smelled around on each floor of the building until she got to the apartment directly above ours. She knocked, then banged. No answer. She came back for two days every few hours and banged on the door. Still no answer. She then wrote a letter and tried to stuff it under his door, but it wouldn't squeeze through as the space in between the floor and the door was so narrow and the hallway carpet was also blocking the way. So she went to put it in the unit's mailbox in the front area of the building. When she got there, the mailbox was stuffed full and there was a sticker on from the post office, probably saying they could not deliver mail to the box for being so full. When she discovered the mailbox full, it dawned on her something might be wrong. Her and I went back to our apartment, and she called the police. Within the hour, two police officers showed up 
and started banging on the upstairs apartment door. The building was so old and run down that we could hear everything. Every bang, the dispatcher on the radios, every step, and then eventually them coming back downstairs to our unit. I asked my mom who or where the landlord was, and she explained how he lived elsewhere and how she had called to complain repeatedly, only to be ignored. The officer then asked my mom to call the landlord and give him the phone. Landlord answered, and the officer identified himself to him and asked for access to the unit or had landlord come do an emergency inspection. The guy was there in 10 minutes. As soon as he got to the building, my mom grabbed me into her arms and we followed the landlord and the officers upstairs. The landlord banged on the door, announced he was doing an emergency inspection, then unlocked the door. I really wish that my mother would have just left me in our apartment watching TV or something, because when that door was opened, directly across from the entrance to the apartment was the guy who lived there, dead. He had slashed his own wrists and taken a bunch of pills while sitting at his kitchen table. He was dead for weeks and bloated so bad, his skin was splitting and he had maggots coming out of his mouth and out of his nose. I saw it all as everyone in the hallway was completely stunned and my mother couldn't even process what she was seeing, never mind what I was seeing. And if we thought the smell was bad before, we were immediately proven wrong the second that door was opened. It was such a horrific smell and sight that the landlord ran outside to throw up multiple times. The police called the coroner, and they took the body out of the building. After he was out, they were gone and never came back, as it was very clear what had happened. The landlord came to our apartment a couple hours later, as my mother was looking in the newspaper for a new place, and offered her a deal. She could have the next three months rent-free if she cleaned the apartment upstairs out and got it ready to be repainted. She reluctantly agreed, but got to it that day. She took me upstairs and instructed me to sit in this person's living room and wait while she started cleaning up all the blood and other miscellaneous dried bodily fluids off the kitchen floor. After she did that, she started going through his possessions looking to see if there was a family member that she could call to collect the deceased's belongings. It sadly found no such information. She contacted one of the officers that came to our apartment to see if they knew of anyone, but unfortunately, he had no known living family that they could find. She waited a week, just in case somebody showed up, before she had to clear the belongings and furniture out of the unit. She eventually got everything out and scrubbed that place as best she could, but the smell just would not go away. We went to a store and bought the stuff called Nil Odor. It was a spray can that was supposed to remove any odor from places it was used. My mother used six full cans 
over four days. Not only did it not remove the smell, but it mixed it with its own smell and created a whole new level of awful. We went back to the store and explained how it didn't work at removing the smell at all. They said it was not the right kind and she should have used the nil odor drops, which she promptly bought. She used the entire bottle of that over a few days and still could not get rid of the smell of the rotting corpse out of the apartment. It now just smelled like chemicals and death. The smell was still so awful, and she could not take it anymore. We moved about a week later, as it was just too much. She stayed in contact with another person who lived in the apartment, found out that the building still smelled of the noxious awfulness six months later. To this day, if I smell nil odor, I have vivid flashbacks to that door being open with me in my mother's arms, staring directly at this festering mass of rotting death and the terrible realization that his whole life was shoved into bags and thrown into a dumpster and there were no loved ones to remember or mourn him. This was my first experience with trauma that even 35 years later still haunts me to this day. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. 
and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25 what it was early 1986 and my girlfriend and i who lived in a very small town in northern wisconsin decided to move to minneapolis we were musicians at the time and minneapolis was in the purple rain phase it was a global phenomenon and uh we wanted to get a piece of that action and try our best, so we moved on down to Minneapolis and lived with my sister in, I guess it would be South Minneapolis, but it was really more towards the inner city of Minneapolis, south of Franklin and Nicollet Avenues in that area, the Stevens Park community, uh, big brownstone building uh, overlooking Stevens Park, which was a dangerous area, actually. We didn't know that. We were quite naive little country bumpkins, no street smarts whatsoever, but we were bulletproof and didn't know any better. So we took a lot of risks as we all do in that area. Turns out there had been a couple murders and what this, the perpetrator did was he would ring the buzzer on these brownstone buildings, wait for somebody to buzz them in and then get up to his evil deeds, which was breaking into somebody's apartment and then murdering the people. Pretty nasty stuff. We um, moved about two blocks away, more towards there's a, I think it's called the Minneapolis Institute of the Arts, or there's a museum down there, south of Franklin Avenue. Uh, in between Franklin Avenue and that museum, there's a street. And the the apartment complex that we moved into was a small, small affair. It was only eight units, four on the bottom, four on the top. It was a sort of a 1920s, 1930s Art Deco building, and the front was all plate glass, quite beautiful. But the owner didn't want to put locks on the doors because the doors were solid glass, so uh, he didn't want to bother putting any sort of security on. So we probably had the only building in South Minneapolis that didn't have security security doors, which was very, very unsafe. As a result of that, uh, the woman that lived across the, the hall from us, she was a nurse. And when she'd get home at night, she'd knock on the door of the woman that lived below us, and they would walk up together. There were two sets of stairs going to the second floor, one in the front and one in the back. And on the night that this event happened, luck would have it that they showed up at the exact moment that the person that fit the description of the murderer was at our door. It was the middle of the night, I'm sure quite after 12, 1 o'clock in the, in the evening, middle of summer, stinking hot. My girlfriend and I were fast asleep. We had the uh, floor fan on high, so we couldn't hear anything, except we heard the very loud pounding on our door. I bolted up and ran to the door and looked at the peephole, and it was the police. 
opened the door and said, can I help you? And they said, concerned looks on their faces, are, are you okay? Everything okay in there? And, yep, everything's fine. Why? What's, what's happening? Well, sir, there was a gentleman just at your door trying to break in. And as luck would have it, the woman next door, you, the nurse, came home at the exact moment that he was breaking in. He had a large screwdriver in his hand, and he had a towel wrapped around his hand so nobody could see it. And the woman got home, and she saw the guy at our door and said, What are you doing? And he said, Oh, I'm here to see the girl inside. And then he turned and took a step towards her. And luckily, she had the friend who had just come up the back set of stairs and startled the guy, and he ran off. So this event happened, what, 35, 36 years ago? And I mean, it's still fresh in my mind. It's actually haunted me for most of my life. It's usually uh, the middle of the night that I, I sort of check the doors, check the windows, and have lived a pretty paranoid life, actually. But I'm, I'm getting better, and, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's the things that, that don't happen to us that can cause all the, uh, the night frights. You know, I just think about in the event of a, that, that, that happened, I think about all the things in the day that take a minute to do, because that could have been the difference between life and death for me, one minute. Putting your dishes in a dishwasher, getting caught at a, red light, washing your hands, putting on your shoes, talking on the phone, going to a convenience store and, and buying a Coke. A minute. Imagine if that woman, who I don't even know her name, even though she's my angel, she probably saved my life and my girlfriend's lives. What would have happened if they wouldn't have shown up at that exact moment? We were fast asleep in bed, didn't hear anything. We, would, we wouldn't have heard him come in. We, wouldn't have heard, we would have been at his mercy. And by all accounts, he didn't give much mercy. So I'm grateful, but, but haunted by the randomness of that. Some of the people uh, said that, um, you know, that it wasn't blind luck, but it was a divine intervention that I have angels. And I think maybe, maybe we all have angels uh, or not. Uh, who knows? I guess that's a matter of faith, isn't it? But um, I want to thank you for listening to this, and uh, please be safe, be well. Don't live in a building without security doors, and uh, always be careful. When I was in my early 20s, I moved back home to my parents' house in my hometown, and I didn't really know anyone there anymore. I didn't really have any connections or have anyone close to me outside of my family. And I thought it would be a good idea to go down to the local mall and just walk around and see if I could find anyone who looked friendly that I might be able to strike up a relationship with. I did come across someone who he reminded me a lot of a friend that I'd had in my former town where I'd been living. And I thought maybe I could form a connection with this person. So we talked for a while and exchanged phone numbers. After talking for a couple of weeks, um, he did ask me out on a date. 
The only problem was that he didn't drive, so I would have to go and pick him up at his house where he lived with his grandmother. And that wasn't too much of a big deal to me because it's not that common or really not that uncommon to find people who don't drive in larger cities. So I waited all week and I was pretty excited. And then when the day came, he pretty much ghosted me. I couldn't get him on the phone and he wouldn't answer any texts. So I just thought maybe he wasn't as interested as I thought he was and pretty much let it go just because... You know, sometimes things don't work out. But then he got a hold of me a couple of days later. He called and he explained that the reason that he had not gone on that date with me was because he had lost his ferret. His ferret had died and he was really very upset by that and didn't feel up to getting out and being social. And I understood that and I I took it as a reasonable excuse because anytime I've ever, you know, experienced something like that, It can be kind of traumatizing. So we made arrangements to go out the next following weekend. And when that day came, he did not ghost me. He did answer the phone. I ended up over there at his grandmother's house to pick him up. He didn't quite have everything in order, so I followed him to his bedroom so that he could pick up the last few things that he needed. Just to make sure that he was, you know, prepared and had his wallet with him and all of those different things that you do. But when he opened up the bedroom door, the thing that I noticed first was that his bedroom pretty much just consisted of four blank walls, a bare full-size mattress in the middle of the floor. There was no sheet or blankets or anything like that. And probably there had to have been 200 empty soda cans just piled all around the bed, like in little towers and stacks. But that wasn't That wasn't the main thing that I noticed. The main thing that I noticed was that suddenly my eyes were burning and they started to water and then the smell hit my nose and it coated like the inside of my nose in a way that makes sure that you'll never forget the intensity of the stench that it will be burned into into your memory. And he said, oh, don't mind that. That's just my ferret. And I looked, and over in the corner, there was indeed a ferret cage with a dead ferret in it. And obviously, I was completely shocked that he had been coexisting with the corpse of his dead pet ferret as it sat in the corner of his room, probably for over a week at this point. He was really disappointed that we didn't get to go on that date, But I wasn't very disappointed when I went home. That was enough of a red flag for me. So about 20 years ago, I was working as a security guard in the mall. Funny thing is, I wasn't even supposed to work that night. I was covering for someone. Uh, I got a call over the radio saying that a female fainted in the restroom. So I ran towards the restroom. I ran down the corridor. And when I opened the restroom door, I didn't see anybody, but I heard somebody crying. I walked into the restroom and I I looked under the stalls and I saw somebody sitting on the floor in the handicapped stall. So I introduced myself. I knocked on the door. Um, I told her I was going to come in. I told her I was security. The door was locked, so I did have to crawl under the door. And when I crawled under the door to unlock it, when I stood up, we were both facing each other and I stood up to her pointing a gun on my head, at my forehead, 
and um she was just crying and my radio kept going off i kept telling her that i could help her and it just must have been a minute but it felt like a lifetime and she just kept crying and the last thing i said to her was i can help you and she just said you can't help me she took the gun pointed it to the side of her head and shot herself she fell back landed between the little crack between the, the toilet and the wall and half of her head was missing she was still gasping for air i was a 20 year old kid that had no idea what to do i ran out of the restroom freaking out one of my good friends was working with me at the time he ran down the corridor i just held him and i told him not to go in and long story short what happened with this lady she was a 20 uh 24 year old female had just lost custody of her kids and decided to end it all i was trying to get into law enforcement at the time and after seeing that i just i couldn't do it because i thought i still see her struggling and breathing for air i mean what did i know i i just figured i can't help her and i was pretty lost after that just completely took a different career path. That's my story. Hi, my name is Elizabeth, and this is my story of what was it like. When I got out of bed on May 12, 2017, to walk my two German shepherds, I could never have imagined in a million years what was about to happen to me. I live in Arizona, and because of the heat, I get up at 5 a.m. to walk my dogs. It is my routine every day to walk them along a pathway next to a desert wash behind our local library a few miles from my home. I love the remote quietness of the area. As I drove into the parking lot that Friday morning, just as the sun was starting to rise, I noticed a car and thought it was odd. Usually, no one is there. I leashed up the dogs and began walking down the path I usually walk down. We hadn't gotten very far when I started hearing a loud rasping sound. I looked down to my left where it was coming from, and I saw a man sitting on the ground, his legs crossed, slouched over, and leaning against a brick fence pillar. I approached him and said, Sir, are you okay? I asked him again. No answer. He continued taking deep labored breaths. He still did not respond. He was dressed very neatly in blue jeans, a light blue-striped long-sleeved shirt, white tennis shoes, and wearing a gold wedding band on his wedding ring finger. Then I noticed the front of his shirt was covered in blood, and blood was pouring out his right temple. I saw what looked like a flashlight near his leg, and I thought, well, maybe he fell. As I got closer, I realized it was the barrel of a gun. I fumbled in my pocket for my cell phone and called 911. I told the dispatcher there was a man covered in blood near the library. Strange things started going through my head, like I was probably going to be late for work. Who was going to believe me that I found somebody shot in the head? So I took a picture. Within a few minutes, police cars started showing up. I directed the first responding officer to the location. The officer leaned over and picked up a 22 caliber black revolver handgun laying next to the man's leg and placed it in a bag. As I stood there with my two dogs, 
More and more police cars kept arriving until the lot was full of red and blue flashing lights. Several officers cordoned off the area with yellow crime scene tape. It felt very strange standing on the inside of the crime scene tape. An ambulance arrived and transported the man to a nearby trauma center. There was an officer assigned to stay with me and my dogs. Finally, the lead officer came over to talk to me. He asked me some questions about who I was and how I came to find this man. I said I was just a complete stranger out walking my dogs. Several hours later, I was finally cleared to leave the scene. I learned from the police that the man passed away four days later. To this day, I don't know his name. I always wondered if I had shown up maybe 20 minutes earlier, would I have been able to stop him? I don't know. I think about him every day when I pass by the spot where I found him. So my first relationship out of high school was abusive and I almost died. Very early on, he told me the typical, um, all my exes are crazy bit, and for no good reason, I just believed it. Occasionally, he would yell at me and scream if I couldn't hang out with him, and I justified that as being okay because I thought he was hurt and I felt like his actions weren't his choice. Obviously, this just got gradually worse. It went from yelling to throwing things to shoving and raising fist very quickly under a year's time. The time he almost killed me, we were house-sitting for my mother while she was on a trip for her birthday, and we had gotten into a non-violent fight. I decided that I was going to sleep on the couch, and before I went to sleep, I texted a friend of mine the phrase, I don't think I'm cut out for romantic relationships. While I was asleep, he read that, and it sent him over the edge. There was a lockbox in the room, because my mom's house was a rental, and that's where she still kept the spare key. Lockboxes are sturdy, and they're solid metal and heavy. I had kind of woken up when he entered the room, and I had hardly looked at him when he threw this lockbox at my head. He was only a few feet from me, so it was pretty close range. I remember it as just a sudden white flash, and my body felt bad. I fell off the couch and started to crawl, and that's when he picked it up and hit me with it again. It was another white flash, and then my hearing was really muffled, and all I could hear was my heartbeat in my ears. That was my oh shit moment, because tunnel vision started kicking in, and my body felt like it was underwater. All I could think was, fuck, I'm hurt, I'm hurt, I have to get help. I somehow was able to crawl to the bathroom with my phone before he could catch me. I have cuts in my memory here, because I only remember shutting and locking the door. I don't actually remember grabbing my phone or anything else. While I was in the bathroom, I was really dizzy and it was hard to move. I don't know how long I was in there or how long he was outside of the door, but at some point I realized he was just pounding on the door um, and screaming to be let in. I finally came to the moment where I thought, okay, I have to call 911. I have to call for help. He's going to kill me. I'm going to die. I have to call for help. So I pick up my phone and I'm trying to dial, but the screen's black. 
and I'm really disorientated, but it's not working. And then I realized that the battery had been removed from my phone. So before he hit me, he had taken the battery out of my phone and then returned my phone to the same spot. So I couldn't call for help. I remember feeling sleepy and scared. When I finally felt my head, it was just this burning hot lump behind my ear. The swelling felt like it was as big as my hand, and I didn't know what to do. So I got into the bathtub, turned on the cold water, and I just sat there pressing the lump on my head against the cold faucet, hoping it would help somehow. Eventually, I fell asleep, and he got in, but at that point, he was just doing this thing where he was crying and saying, oh my god, my life is ruined, my life is ruined, and he just kept saying that. I couldn't talk. I just felt dizzy and sick, and he was trying to get me to follow his fingers with his with my eyes, and I couldn't do it. The next day, I had work, and I was still really woozy and in pain. The girls on my job could see the swelling under my hair, and halfway through my shift, I went home and begged him to take me to urgent care. By that time, he had calmed down and was in the reconciliation phase, so he agreed. For some reason at the urgent care, they just let my boyfriend go in with me to see the doctor, despite putting down head injury on the check-in. So I had to lie to this doctor about what happened. The doctor looked at him and looked at me for a really long time before explaining that I had an internal contusion affecting my face, eye, and neck, and a temporal lobe concussion. He looked at me and told me that if my injury was just one inch forward, I would have had internal bleeding in my brain and died, and that I'm lucky I didn't. He told me to go to an ER immediately if my symptoms got worse, and that was it. So we went home, and I was okay enough at that time. A week later, he slammed that side of my head into a door frame repeatedly when I was trying to run from him during another violent incident. Another time after that, he almost killed us both in the car driving 90 miles an hour. And the abuse didn't really end until I was finally able to move without telling anyone where I was going to go. So not a lot, a lot of time has passed, but he's completed schooling to be a social worker now, and it terrifies me. I still have residual effects from the concussion, like brain fog and issues with facial blindness. The scariest thing for me is that he worked up to being that violent. I wasn't the only victim, and I think about what could happen to someone else all the time, especially because he's faced no repercussions. I also think about how many others like him there are. This happened to me a few months ago at my current workplace. Occasionally, my wife will be a very kind soul and will actually make my lunch for me for work if I don't end up having time the night beforehand. Sometimes when she does this, she'll include a note on, she'll write down to a napkin or a paper towel. Usually it says something like, have a great day or such. This time, she wrote a note that said, I love you, uh, you know, dash, I love me, in Sharpie and on a paper towel. I work in an office, and it has a small break room where I eat my lunch. On this particular day, I sat down in the break room, 
um, at my work, again, eating my lunch, you know, sort of normal situation. On this table, there happened to be a black Sharpie and a roll of paper towels. I set them aside to give myself a little room to eat. I set up all my things and began eating and watching a video on my phone. As I'm eating, one of the department heads comes in, and a few moments later, so does my boss. I chat a little with them both, and while talking, uh, the department head happens to look at the note my wife wrote me on the paper towel in Sharpie next to the roll of paper towels and a Sharpie. The same note that says, I love you, love me. He then proceeds to ask, did you write yourself a note? And I had to look at the note, the Sharpie, the paper towels, as well as my boss's department head, and they seemed to have a very growing sense of concern for me. I quickly realized how it must appear to both of them, and as my my mouth discussed the food, I had to very quickly uh, explain to them that I'm not, in fact, in need of serious emotional help. It didn't help that I was also laughing at the time, and it was a very hard situation to believe. Luckily, they both laughed and believed me, and they haven't brought it up since, so hopefully I'm doing pretty good there. Thank you very much for listening, and um, have a great day. I remember most of this story, but some parts are hazy because I was almost six. It started when me, my mom, my three-year-old sister, my mom's friend, and my 15-year-old aunt went to our lake near us. We started packing up, and after swimming for a few hours, my mom took a cooler to the car while my aunt watched us pack up. My little sister started saying she didn't want to wear her life jacket to swim, but my mom already told her she had to keep it on while my mom was away packing up. And while my aunt wasn't looking and she was packing up towels, my sister ran off angrily, screaming, I don't want my life jacket on. And I didn't pay any attention to her because I don't really do that when she's throwing a fit. And we weren't paying attention for what felt like two seconds when my mom came back and asked where my sister was and that's when it hit me and I looked down at my feet and her life jacket is on the towel so everybody starts running around crazy like calling for her name like calling out her name and we just hear nothing so what felt like an eternity and then I started crying because that's what any six-year-old would do in that situation. When all of a sudden I hear my aunt scream my mother's name and I look over and there's just a group of people and I walk over to the group of people and I see my three-year-old sister laying there not responding and she's blue. And that is the scariest thing that I've probably ever seen in my entire life. And my mom was in shock when she got over there, of course. And my aunt kept trying to do CPR. There was a nurse there. And she had no pulse. But then they started doing CPR. And a team uh, of firefighters and police officers got there. And they were able to bring her back to life. She was probably dead for about for five minutes but she's alive and okay now and i'm so happy that she's alive and i'm so happy she pulled through and she is one tough fighter hello everyone my name is natalia i'm brazilian and i work as an english teacher here in brazil the story i'm going to tell you happened a couple of years ago 
when I was starting out in a new job, an English course. And during one of my classes, I had a very bad bellyache. So in the short break between two classes, I ran to the bathroom to relieve myself. And the bathroom was connected to the teacher's room where all of my colleagues were gathering, waiting for the next class to start. So I was really embarrassed of opening the door and let everybody smell the reminiscent odor of my diarrhea. So I had the idea of opening the bathroom's window to let the wind circulate a little before opening the door. But the window was stuck. It was like glass made and it was stuck. And as I tried to force it, it fell. <laughs> it fell and it broke into a million pieces on the ground. And everybody heard the noise. And they knocked on the door, asked if I was all right. So I had to open it. And, well, they not only could smell it, but they could also see that I was trying to get rid of the smell by breaking the window. So it was really, really humiliating. But I didn't get fired. My whole life growing up, my mom had debilitating ocular migraines that would leave her crying afterward. And one of these migraines, my drunken stepdad at the time, was screaming at her to sh shut her fucking mouth and a bunch of other nonsense. He ended up freaking out and running outside and getting a shovel. And he came back in and threw it toward me. And he went into the spare bedroom and got a shotgun and uh, aimed it at my mom's face and said, if she doesn't shut the fuck up, uh, I'm going to shoot her. And that I was supposed to go dig her a grave. So I went outside at... Uh, 10 to 12 years old probably and started digging a hole in the woods sometime later i heard a gun go off coming from my house i wasn't that far away so i ran off into the woods that night i came back and got my dog who was always chained up out back and went further into the state game lands that were right past my property line and stayed there for three days and two nights. Sometime later, I heard a four-wheeler on the third day and heard my mom yelling for me. I guess she was stopping every once in a while and calling out my name. So I ran up to her and I never really talked to her about it ever from that point forward. Uh, it was kind of just something that I dealt with. I blocked it out for a really long time. And years later in therapy, it like triggered back into my memory. Just want to let everybody know that shit might be rough sometimes, especially as a kid. But I promise it gets better. I'm 24 years old now, so this was probably 12 to 14 years ago. I have an amazing family and a beautiful fiancé and two amazing kids. 
one of those two is my stepdaughter and I can promise on everything that she will never ever be treated the same way I was. So keep your heads up and enjoy life as it is now. Hi, Scott. I'm pretty much addicted to your podcast. I binged listened to it till I was all caught up and I can't wait for each episode that comes out. So keep up the good work. You had asked recently if people had stories about regrets that they have. And my regret involved a young man, I'm going to call him Joe. And I'd heard a rumor in the community that he was kind of a reckless driver. Not long after that, I heard that Joe was dating my friend's daughter. And we weren't close friends, kind of acquaintances. You know, we knew each other's names and each other's children. And I'm going to call the daughter Sue. So Joe was dating Sue. And I thought about saying something to Sue's mother about Joe's reputation for driving recklessly. But I thought, I don't really have any facts. It's just rumors and... I'm just going to try to mind my own business. Well, not long after that, Joe and Sue were in a car together, and Joe ran a stop sign, and Sue was killed. And the car that he and the other car involved in the accident had three people in it, and two of them died. It was a father and his teenage daughter were also killed in that accident, And ever since then, if I've had an opportunity to speak up for someone and try to advocate for them, I am just compelled to do that. The accident happened very close to my parents' home, and the family put up a little cross and a little memorial near that intersection. And so I think about that every time I visit my parents. And I just like to encourage other listeners to Follow those little nudges, that inner voice that says, hey, something isn't right here. Um, because you, you never know if we speak up. We may be able to impact someone's life for the good. We may be able to save a life. So keep up the good work. Thanks. I had a very unique childbirth experience with my second. I was in my first semester of nursing school. Uh, I was just going, I was going to be due a month after the end of the semester, which was into the summer. So I was going to have a little bit of time with my baby before I had to go back to school. And I had one teacher in particular, she was teaching the fundamentals of nursing, very beginning core course. Um, She specialized in geriatrics. And she would joke with me all the time, you're not contracting, are you? Because if you are, I'm just calling an ambulance because I don't do babies. (laughs) Um, So there were a couple of times throughout the semester that me and some of my friends pranked her and made her think I was going into labor just to make her nervous. And uh, it kind of became this joke. Well, I was walking into my last final of the semester, which just happened to be for her class. And as we're getting ready to go in, my water breaks. And I just kind of stopped. And I turned to my sister-in-law, who was also taking the class with me. And I said, my water just broke. 
and she looked at me and later she said that she knew I wasn't joking because she could see every single freckle on my face because I was so pale (laughs) because I was scared. (laughs) This was about a month before my due date. Um, So some of the girls ran into the teacher offices to get my instructor and they were saying her water broke. And she took a little while to come to me because she said, you guys, I'm not doing this, uh, thinking that it was a prank again. <laughs> but they finally convinced her to come out. So she comes out and she kind of, you know, looks at me. I was wearing a dress and she slightly lifted it up to make sure there wasn't a big bag of saline in there or something that I was using to trick her. And once she realized that Yes, I was indeed serious. She said to my sister-in-law, go ahead and take her to the hospital. I'll figure out another time for you guys to be able to take your finals. So we went to the hospital and we were kind of laughing and joking about it. And I was told later that I did my fellow classmates a huge disservice because now they couldn't think about the answers on their tests because they were so surprised and they just couldn't stop thinking about what had just happened. Anyway, I get to the hospital. I had planned on not doing an epidural, not because I disagree with them, but simply I just wanted to see if I could do it. And so I labored for about 24 hours and I was not progressing. And I was up and walking around and I passed this really large blood clot. And even though I had not taken OB in nursing school yet, I thought, you know, I don't think that that's supposed to happen. (laughs) So we called my nurse in, she came in and checked me and she discovered that my baby's cord was coming before the baby. It's called a prolapsed umbilical cord. It is a medical emergency. It is very, very dangerous because after, or each time you have a contraction, it cuts off the baby's blood supply. The doctor came in and he was talking to the nurses about what was going on. And I said, what does all this mean? And he said, it means you have to have a, an emergency section right now. So they started getting me prepped to go to the OR. My husband was starting to get on a suit that you have to wear to go into the OR. And the doctor said, after looking at the baby's vital signs, he said, you know what? No, I'm sorry. You can't come back. This is, this is dangerous. We have to take her right now. And so they wouldn't let my husband go back with me. I remember them rushing me into the operating room. And I had worked in an operating room for several years. And when I saw all those people and how fast they were setting up, I thought, oh, something bad is happening. This is very serious. They put me under general anesthesia since I didn't have an epidural in place. So I wasn't even awake for the C-section. And uh, I was terrified. I went to sleep with tears rolling down my cheeks because I was sure that I was not going to survive. But when I woke up, I asked my nurse if my baby was okay. She said, yes, she is, but they have to take her to a different hospital because the hospital I was at did not have a NICU. 
Um, I was told she had lost about 75% of her blood volume because along with the prolapsed cord, I also had what's called an abrupted placenta where the placenta begins to tear away from the wall. And the doctor said the placenta did not look healthy and it looked like it had been abrupted for days to weeks. So my baby was taken to another hospital and I stayed there to recover from my C-section. The next day they allowed my husband to drive me over to the hospital, even though I was still a patient and let me see my baby. She ended up being in the NICU for 11 days. She had to have a blood transfusion along with some antibiotics. She was on oxygen for three months after she came home. And then again for a month when she was eight months old after contracting RSV and bacterial pneumonia. But she is nine years old now and she is healthy as can be. And we're so grateful to have her in our family. But it's definitely a memorable experience. I will never forget it. Hi, um, I am, I'm, I'm choosing to keep myself anonymous, but this is for a story for kids or teenagers who struggle in high school and uh, who just struggle just as much as me. So when I started off high school, my father just passed away my first day of high school and I was really beat up. I was obviously sad and I was really mad and it was at like 3.50 in the morning. So I still had school that day. So I decided I was going to go to school. Maybe I might be able to get my mind off it, talk to some friends, hopefully, you know, not think about it. So heading into class, my biology class, and I go to, you know, talk to my friends. So, you know, I ask them, like, hey, like, you know, let's hang out. And the room goes completely quiet, and everybody starts looking at me. And I'm like, hmm. I'm like, I didn't think nothing of it, you know. And obviously, you know, I was already struggling, so I didn't really like the attention on me. So I was like, oh, that's weird. So then, you know, I asked him one more time. I was like, hey, I was like, you guys want to, like, maybe, like, hang out this weekend, you know, just do something fun. And, you know, uh, one of them say, hey, I'm not going to hang out with no little bitch who's, you know, complaining about his dead dad. Um, my heart instantly sunk, I'm going to be honest. I, I was broken, you know, because I, I thought those were my friends. So, you know, everybody looks at me. And the room goes dead silent. I sit there in silence with my anxiety and stress, and I was I was really broken. So I leave the classroom, and I instantly start bawling, crying, and I start crying and bawling. And then you hear the classroom kind of all like it just becomes loud, and everybody just starts talking and stuff. So I decided I wasn't going to show up for that period. Head to the nurses uh, nurses office and pretend I was sick. So I go to the nurses office. Pretend I was sick, and then I head off the rest of my day. Hopefully, I'd forget about it and just, you know, obviously they weren't friends. So I sit at a table, and I was all alone. I was just sitting there. I had my hoodie on, and I was like, you know what? Maybe I just I don't want to be bothered today. And I didn't want to miss class, so I sit there, and then you just hear all the freshmen talking about me, talking about my dead dad, talking about how I'm a pussy and stuff, or you know, being sad over my dead dad and how their life was much harder. And I was, I was broken. I mean, I already had bi severe bipolar at that time. So, you know, it didn't make anything any better. And I struggled every day, you know, waking up, wanting to go to the same school, seeing the same people, hearing the same things. 
and it it hurt me. It really did. I'm 18 now. I just graduated, and I've never been any better and happier in my life now that I'm done with high school. Back in 2015, I was 16 years old, and on a weekend, my dad decided to take me as a treat to go see the new Terminator movie. And everything was fine until about halfway through the movie after a pretty big car chase scene. At the beginning of this scene, there was a jump scare, and we didn't know it at the time, but this had actually caused an elderly woman in the audience to have a heart attack. And when this happened, the lights in the theater came on and the movie paused. And this caused everybody to kind of just stop, but we only had a second to really realize what was happening before we heard her husband start yelling for help. And he said that she wasn't responding, she had just sat there and had stopped moving. He said that she had gripped his hand really hard and then just lost consciousness. And so my dad was the only one in the theater that actually had CPR experience. So he went down there and helped her husband take her and carry her to the bottom row of chairs. And once they did this, my dad just started going to work. He started doing chest compressions, he started doing mouth-to-mouth, and while he was doing this, we realized that she still wasn't responding. And my dad actually got me to go out and get the attendants to recall the ambulance and get a proper ETA on how long it would be for them to get out to us. So while this was happening, my dad was back in the theater still doing mouth-to-mouth and chest compressions. Later he told me that he was doing them so forcefully that he could actually feel her ribs crack, which is actually a pretty normal thing to happen in CPR, but she still wasn't responding after a certain amount of time. We had noticed she had actually urinated herself, and she had very glazy eyes, and my dad was pretty sure at that point that we had lost her. Um, At this point, the ambulance showed up, and I was able to direct the people to the theater where my dad was still working on her, and they were able to go to work. They had a whole machine that did chest compressions for us, and we were only there for a short bit longer before they took her out on a gurney, and the last thing that my dad did was give his business card to the husband and tell him to call us when she recovered, but we never got that call. So we are pretty sure that she passed away that day, and it was a very unfortunate event. The scariest thing, though, to me is that no one else in the theater did anything at all. And that is something that I think could easily be fixed if people just took the time to educate themselves and learn how to take a simple CPR class. You know, if that had been my dad that day that actually had the heart attack, he probably would be dead because there was no one there that knew anything besides him. So I just say educate yourselves and be sure to have a little bit of medical knowledge. So in instances like that, if it is your loved one, you can do the things that you need to do to help give them a fighting chance. Hi, y'all. My name is Brandon. And this is a story about when I had to defend someone else with a gun. My main job is a 911 dispatcher. You can imagine what kind of stress happens day to day with that. 
I also have a second job doing ride share with companies like Uber and Lyft. I enjoy doing this most nights because it's a huge contrast with my regular job. In 911, everyone is calling because something bad is happening to them. With rideshare, especially here where I am, most of the people are tourists. They're just here to have a great time, and I can help them out along the way by taking them back to their hotel or Airbnb when they've had a bit too much to drink or just giving them tips about local sites and attractions, good food, etc. On my weekends, I like driving very late, and I usually go till after the bars close up here, which is around 3 a.m., The night this happened, it was during the summer of 2019. I was pulling up to one of our many streets that have several bars on it and was waiting for my passengers who were on the side of the road by a hot dog stand. There were about 15 or so people hanging around the stand outside of one of the bars that had just closed. While sitting there, one person comes over to my car and gets in, and we were waiting on his friend to get in as well. Luckily for me and for you listening at this point, I, like many other rideshare drivers, I installed a dash cam in my car. The one I have, it records in front of the car for potential collisions and reckless drivers, but also it has an interior camera that records everything going on inside the car along with sound. I'll play the actual audio from what happened so you can kind of get an idea of what happened. But keep in mind, because of the time of night and where this was and what was going on, there's quite a bit of cussing there at the end of this, and you'll hear why. That's your address on the lane? Uh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, right. I lane drive, yeah. Okay. Jake! Jake! What the fuck? Hang on, stay here. Jake, get the fuck in here. Jake, get in here now. Jake, put the gun down. Jake, Jake, get in here now. Jake, get in the fucking car. Get in the fucking car. Get in the fucking car. Get gun now. Jake, what the fuck? I didn't do shit, bro. So you heard the person there that was in my car. What was happening outside the car with the second passenger, his name was Jake. He was waiting for his order to be filled at the hot dog stand. Jake was smoking a cigarette while waiting, and some random guy walked up to him and asked Jake to have a drag from a cigarette. Like anyone with half a brain, Jake declines since he has no idea who this person is. At this point, the random guy grabs Jake's cigarette gets it out of his mouth, throws it on the ground, pulls out a gun, and shoots it right next to Jake's head. I wasn't sure if he was just trying to scare Jake or if he was actually trying to shoot him in the head or what else would happen, but I was afraid someone else might get shot. So after that, I told the passenger that was in the car to stay put. I drew my gun, walked outside, and ordered the guy with the gun to put his gun down. It was a little bit hard to hear over all the yelling of the person inside the car, but if you listen to the background, you can hear me. When the suspect in this thought he was the only one with a gun, he was waving it around and cussing real loudly. When he saw that a gun was pointed at him, 
he quickly turned and ran off. I could have easily just sat there and not intervened at all, but I'm not that type of person. If there was a chance to help someone that needed help, I was going to go ahead and jump in. Police were called to the scene and a report was made, but from what I know, the suspect in this was never found. I'm just glad that I just so happened to be there to run him off before he could have hurt one of those other people that were just standing around wanting to wash down their booze with some hot dogs. If you want to hear more about that incident or want to hear much more about my other job as a 911 dispatcher, feel free to check out my podcast as well. It's called Music City 911, where I play real 911 calls and go over the details about the crimes. It's available to listen to on your favorite podcast app. My father was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 1990, and by 2004, the situation was becoming too much for my mom to handle alone. I'm one of four children, the third in line, but when, but because we lived in the same town, I guess I felt more responsible for them. And to make a long story short, we sold our home and built onto theirs, and I became a caregiver for the next 13 years. My parents were not the overly lovey-dovey type. And here I was, possibly the least favorite kid, which is a whole other story, set up to take care of them for the rest of their lives. When I knew my dad was actively dying, the thought of even asking for hospice help and then calling my siblings to tell them that, it paralyzed me. I was so afraid of the death, the emotions, all of it. But my family all came and we surrounded his deathbed and had the most beautiful send-off. Twelve years later, my mom had a stroke and was in bed for two years. And again, I didn't know how I was going to do this. I just know it had to be done. Caregiving is a really, really hard job. Changing your parents' diapers is just something you don't expect to do in life. Fortunately, my family was great. My kids would keep my mom's spirits up and mine. I remember one night listening to the on the baby monitor to my daughter singing her heart out and my mom jokingly telling her she was really good. My siblings would also come whenever I needed them, and I was graced by their gratitude, but inside I was still so scared of my mom dying. Her death was just as scary to me as my dad's. Giving her the morphine that was prescribed by hospice felt like I was aiding in her death somehow. Again, calling in the family when I knew it was the end was the worst feelings I ever had. I held it together until a car ride to the hospital behind an ambulance carrying my mom, where I think I just scream cried for about 20 minutes. We took her home from the hospital so she could die in her house in peace, surrounded by her family. I missed my parents terribly. I missed the life we had when we were all living together and making the best of their health struggles. But I'm at peace for the death we were able to give them. Hi, Scott. Love the show. In response to your prompt on Facebook, something I did that was incredibly difficult that I never thought I would do was a CrossFit competition. Growing up, I wasn't super athletically inclined, but in my 30s, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure. The weight was creeping up, and I knew that I needed to start some kind of physical activity consistently or else I would just get older and the harder it would be to start. So on a whim, I joined a gym, and unbeknownst to me, they did CrossFit-style workouts as well as HIT-type workouts, and I absolutely loved it. It was the first time I had ever consistently gone to the gym, 
After about a year of going there, a group of the members decided to do a CrossFit competition and actually asked me if I would join them. And I said, yeah, okay, let's do it. My goal was to not place last. And I actually placed eight out of 11. And so I considered that a success. Hi, Scott. Thanks for letting me be on your show. So I tell my daughter, uh, we had a wonderful relationship. And then in 2016, I found out my daughter was an IV drug user. Heroin was her drug of choice. And our relationship went downhill from that. And I'm a tough love kind of mom. And I could not be an enabler and watch my daughter kill herself. But she was homeless for quite a while. And then in 2017, she found out she was pregnant. And she got arrested. While she was in jail, she had to go to the hospital. And she found out she had necrotizing fasciitis in her arm. So she went through several surgeries, skin grafts, all of this while she is pregnant. It was just crazy. So when she was released from the hospital, I brought her to my house, and she went on a um, maintenance program that would keep her from withdrawing so that she would not lose the baby. And she did wonderful. The baby did wonderful. We knew that he was going to have to withdraw at birth, and he did great. It was it was easy. We were at a wonderful hospital that took great care of him, and now he has this, this healthy, wonderful, energetic, three-year-old boy. But when he was four months old, she relapsed, and I had to take him in. And it was very scary because I'm 50-ish. And when you're handed a four-month-old baby, it, it, it scares you. It's hard. There's a lot you have to do. You have to find daycare. You have to do this. You have to do that. But I wouldn't change it for a million dollars. So this year, about 75 days ago, my daughter decided she wanted to get clean. And she is absolutely doing wonderful. She's in a great program in our town. She's going to meetings. She's working that program. She's helping others. She's been working at a sober living house. And she's back living with us. And we are gradually working her back into his life. And he absolutely loves having his mama home. So there is a light at the end of that tunnel. And you can do it if you want to do it. And I am so proud of my daughter. She will never know how proud I am of her and what a good mother she is becoming. I just want other people to know that if you're struggling, if you have to take in a grandchild, do what you need to do. You will not regret it for one minute and be there for your child when they say they're ready to get help. I would walk on water to help my baby. And I am so proud of her. Hello, my name is Devin. I've always had a dream of owning rentals and flipping houses, being involved in real estate. So in the in the beginning, my wife and I started dating at 15, uh, but ended up getting married and had a kid at 17. I moved out and finished our senior year on our own. As you can imagine, the place that we found was not ideal. Not a lot of people want to rent to 17-year-olds. Well, so we didn't have a stove or no microwave. All we had was a hot plate and a single pot to cook our meals in. Uh, the car we had was a five-speed. So we didn't have a starter in it, so we'd have to push it down the road and pop the clutch to get to work every day, and the same way on the way home, of course. 
learned pretty quickly this was not going to be a good lifestyle for us. So we worked really hard to build our credit. And then by 19, we were able to buy our first home. Spent a lot of time fixing this up, working on it. We found after we bought it, the people actually had pet raccoons. So the house was a mess. And we lived there for about five years. During that time, we added another child and decided it was time to move on to another house. So we converted that into a rental and upgraded our life a little bit. And we repeated this process uh, to the point just before the pandemic where I was able to have three rentals. And the property that we live in now has 25 acres and two ponds and very beautiful area. But shortly after that, just as the pandemic got started, unfortunately, I found out that I was diagnosed with cancer. And although I had not taken, I had been working on the real estate stuff, we focused more on family stuff. So during this time, I focused all of my energy, all of our money. We pretty much went all chips in on the real estate thing to follow my dream. And uh, my family was fantastic in supporting me during this time, which, by the way, truly cured, definitely going to live many more years. But anyway, during that time, I put everything I had and was able to flip a home. And as of now, we've got nine rentals and will probably be able to retire by the time I'm 40. I uh, was able to purchase the car of my dreams, which is a Tesla Model 3, and very happy. My name is Megan, and this November 1st, just over a week or so ago, marked five years off of opiates for me. I used different kinds, like pills, dabbled in heroin, but my drug of choice was fentanyl. There's been a drug epidemic around the world and a large increase in deaths from fentanyl. I started drinking around the age of 11 and progressed to cocaine around the age of 14 when I was hanging out with my older sister. Unfortunately, she is still um, suffering from her addiction. The next year was when I started using opiates first to oxys that doc- like doctors used to overprescribe them way too much. They were everywhere. But when those started, when that started happening less, I progressed to like heroin, as I said, and hydromorphine. And eventually I tried fentanyl. Actually, the first time I tried it, I was with my boyfriend and I overdosed and had to be rushed to the hospital and revived with Narcan. You know what I didn't do after overdosing? Try to get sober. It wasn't until a year, over a year later, actually, that I would finally decide to try to get off drugs. But that boyfriend wasn't ready, so we had to go our separate ways. This January, he was shot and killed by police. I've been living with a lot of guilt. I know you can't help someone who doesn't want help, but it's hard. So, on to the good, though. At the end of 2016, I made the decision to try to better myself, but physically, like, it was unbearable. I won't go into the too much information details, but after being so dehydrated from withdrawals, I started uh, medication-assisted treatment, Suboxin. So, the doctors and nurses at the clinic were absolutely amazing. Seriously, like, they saved my life. I was able to taper off of the suboxone just in time for me to get pregnant unexpectedly. (laughs) My ex left me as soon as I told him. And it was a really hard time physically and mentally because I was really sick with HG. 
But I pulled through, and I have a sweet three-year-old son. Now I'm in school full-time for child needs care. I have a great boyfriend, and we're planning our future together. In my Facebook memories, I see pictures of me, and you can see it in my eyes how high I was. It's a good reminder that I've come a long way, and I have a lot of things to look forward to in the future. We wanted to always frame his um, story and and as a possible positive light that we could, given the circumstances of being abandoned, that we didn't want it to be focused on that he was left or he was abandoned, but that he was found and that we found each other. And so we wanted it to be a source of, I mean, we always wanted him to know his story. We never hid anything from him. So he knew from the earliest times about the creation of our family and how that all happened. We would even tell him like bedtime stories that we uh, put together a very rudimentary picture book of telling the story of how we became a family. It was just like clip art and telling the story in the, in the voices of the trains. So it was, they were animated trains that told the story of Danny and carrying the uh, Clara the Sea Train carrying Danny down the subway line to the station and to find baby Kevin using all of our names and telling it in a very simple way, the story of how we became a family. That that's what we read to him for a few years from when he was really young, probably when he was about five, I'd say. He finally, he finally clicked that this story, even using all of our real names and even going through the station, it happened on one night where he was sitting on the couch and had the book in his hand, hands and he wanted each of us to sit on either side of him and he wanted us to read the story to him. And of course, you know, it was a frequent bedtime story we would read. So we're reading it. At the very end, he pauses. He said, is this about me? And we pause for a second. It's like, where is this going to go? And we say, yes, this is your story. This is how we became a family. And he had this big grin on his face. And he's like, smiling. Let's read it again. It took on a different meaning for him. And because of that, he then took it into school to, to show and tell. And he told this story with such pride. I think it was probably like in second grade, first or second grade, that this happened. Uh, we get a call from one of the, the parents that says, you know, your son brought in a book about uh, your family, your, your family story. And we're thinking it's going to be bad for you. It's just something like this parent's going to have a very strong reaction, negative reaction. And she said, I just want to let you know that this had a really big impact on my daughter. So her daughter is adopted. And she's been struggling with that and that Kevin was so comfortable and so confident and so happy and had such pride about being adopted and about his story. It's helped my daughter feel better about her being adopted and that she has a friend that's also adopted and that she could talk about this with. And so I was like, well, it's just a wonderful thing. What a gift that is. Oddly enough, in my headphones, I was listening to some courtroom analysis of a high-profile shooting case when the commotion started. 
three consecutive bangs and then a fourth. Immediately, I knew they were gunshots and they sounded very close. So I went to the window and I peered out to the street in front of my home. At first glance, he looked like a pile of laundry and spilled onto the road because I didn't expect to see a body. A man had been gunned down and was sprawled out on the asphalt, and his legs were still on the sidewalk. He wasn't moving. I ran down the stairs to get a better look at what was happening, and I wasn't the only one. My landlord had just came down as well, and we spoke on the porch. People poured out into the fast food restaurant parking lot across the street, and some were frantic, and others were calm, and from my porch, I briefly remarked about the dire situation with my landlord as we watched a passerby administrating CPR. Suddenly, I realized perhaps I could help, so I ran upstairs to get a towel, and I ran back down, and I darted across the street. Uh, I darted across the street between the cars, stalled in the traffic. I stood over the dying man and handed somebody a towel. When I looked down, I didn't see any obvious wounds, but he did have blood on his face. While one person on the ground was pumping his chest, others were gathering around. Background voices were making emergency calls and asking each other questions like, What happened? Did you see anything? I was just inside and I heard shots. Most clearly among the voices, a very distraught woman, evidently from inside the restaurant, pleaded and cried to no one in particular. Over an order? Over food? I returned home and watched for another 20 minutes before an ambulance finally had him loaded up and drove away. My own vehicle was still stuck inside the yellow tape that marked off the crime scene. It became clear from the witnesses inside the store that an argument had broken out between a customer and an employee, and when they took it outside, the worker pulled a gun. Unfortunately, the man was pronounced dead at the hospital. I don't know what happened to the shooter. Over food. Over an order. <laughs>